0: If you please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, today we're going to be reading out of 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, Bruce is going to be continuing in a series on assurance. And uh, like Pastor Bruce said, if you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page uh, 708. If you just follow along as I read. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for you, for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, young children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we come this Sunday in a congregation to uh, abide in you, take the time to realign our hearts and uh, seek you first before anything else. I pray you give Bruce the words to speak and that our hearts would be open and willing to listen. In your name, amen. I love that video. We've showed it before here in our worship service,
1: and it is such a powerful video with a powerful message because that is what Jesus Christ can do for you. That is the power of the gospel that radically changes our lives alters our affections in our lives as well and that is is, is somewhat the message of 1st John in this sense that he wants you to have this kind of assurance that when Jesus is a part of your life when you place your faith and trust in him it doesn't matter where you've been and what you've done he makes all things new that's the power of Jesus Christ In fact, the greatest miracle that God ever performs is the miracle of what the Bible calls salvation. When God radically alters the direction of your life and when He radically alters the affections of your life. Many of you, you've experienced this miracle of salvation. You know what it means for God to to radically change your life and alter your love In fact, this change of affections is another powerful proof that we are true believers in Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that John now comes to us again in this passage of Scripture and he issues us, he gives us this straightforward warning, if you will, specifically here in verse 15. Notice it. Notice this love that God hates in this verse. In your notes there, I invite you to pull it out of your bulletins and follow along, or you can just follow along on the screen behind me. But the warning is clear. It's do not love the world or the things in the world. How many of you remember going on field trips when you were a little kid, perhaps in grade school? Sure, I'm sure most of you have. A group of first graders had just completed their field trip of a hospital when the nurse who had directed their tour asked if they had any questions and immediately a hand goes up from this little boy and he asked how come the people who work here are always washing their hands well the nurse chuckled a little bit and then finally said well they are always washing their hands for two reasons first they they love health and second they hate germs That There's a a right kind of love for believers to have, and there's a wrong kind of love for believers to have. Last Sunday, we talked about how true believers love one another by acting in love, but now John warns us here that there is a, quote, wrong kind of love, a love that God actually hates, and John defines it as a love for the world. In fact, James teaches us in James 4.4 not to even make friends with the world, for in doing so we become an enemy of God. And now John here in this passage tells us not to love the world, for if we do, then the love of the Father is not even in us. Now it's interesting that this is the only command in our passage here this morning. Out of these six verses, it's the only imperative, it's the only command, it's the only thing that John is now telling us what not to do. Therefore, it is is the prime point of John here in this passage. It is the main emphasis. Do not love the world or the things in the world. But why is that? Why would John tell us that? What's the point of it? Is John just trying to be mean here to us? Or does he have a greater purpose? That he's trying to communicate to us. As believers, why are we commanded not to love this world in which we live? Well, there are four reasons why that flow out of these six verses here in John chapter 2. And so let's unpack these four reasons why John tells us not to love the world. Number one is because of who the believer is. That's the first reason why, because of who the believer is in Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to remember what we need to forget and forget what we need to remember. And John wants us to remember some very important truths about who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. In verses 12 through 14, John uses three different titles for the believers he's writing to. Maybe you... You caught those titles as, as Jeremy read the text for us. He, he uses this term, little children, which we have seen before. And then he, he moves from little children, he uses the term fathers, and then he, he also uses this term, young men. Now, why does John address his readers in this fashion? Well, I like how one pastor and author puts it. He answers the question this way. He says, I think the three groups of children, fathers, and young men originated something like this. In these verses, John wants to reach out to the church with affection and encouragement. And so he begins by calling them all children, just like he does five other times. Remember, that term children, it's a term of affection, a term of endearment, a term of love, like a loving father speaking to his family, his children. And then John pauses and thinks, I certainly don't want to give offense to the leaders in the church the venerable old men or the virile young men with this affectionate term, children. Perhaps I should address these two groups directly this once. And so he applies truths that are now valid for the whole true church to those two specific groups, the venerable fathers who have knowledge and the virile young men who have conquered. But don't skip over these verses if you don't happen to be in one of those groups. What is true for them is true for all believers. And so what is that truth that applies for all believers here even today? This is what we are to remember about us. This is the first reason why we are not to love the world, because of who we are in Jesus Christ. And who is that? What does John highlight about us? These truths about who you are in Christ. Number one is your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ for the sake of Christ's name. Your sins are forgiven. John begins with this simple, basic, yet very profound truth in verse 12. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Again, this title, little children, it refers to all believers in Jesus Christ. It literally means born ones. And so a believer is one who has been born again Into God's family through faith in Jesus, and their sins have been forgiven. In fact, there are only two families in this world there is the family of God, and there is Satan's family. And you're either in one or the other, and there are no other options. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, though, God adopts us into His family. He rescues us, if you will, from Satan's family. And because our sins are forgiven, we are now welcomed by God the Father as His children. God no longer sees us as sinners, but He sees us now and treats us as sons and daughters In his eternal family never forget the forgiveness of sins is the greatest gift we can ever receive do you know this gift have you received this gift the forgiveness of sins this is what's true about you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ your sins have been forgiven is that not phenomenal ponder that truth Wrap your heart around that truth that when you sin, going back to 1 John 1, nine, remember what he tells us about sin. We know we stumble and fall. We're not without sin. We're going to sin at times. But when we do, true believers confess their sin to God. And he f- promises God is faithful and just to always do what? To forgive us again and to cleanse us from that shame and guilt of our sins. You're forgiven as a true believer in Jesus Christ. But there's another truth that John wants you to remember, and that is you know God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, it's through Jesus that you know God. It's through your faith in Jesus Christ that you are now reconciled to God because before Christ you were an enemy of God and now you have been reconciled to God the Father. You know Him. And when we know Jesus our Savior, we get God as our Father. John says in verse 13, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And then John says to the children at the end of verse 13, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. And the beauty of this statement, it's in its simplicity, the one who is God is now our heavenly Father. I don't know what kind of father you have grown up with. Perhaps you had a good father, perhaps he was an absent father, perhaps he was an abusive father. Perhaps you never had a father. Whatever the case may have been, if you're a believer in Christ, you now have a heavenly father. And he is a good father. He is a gracious father. He is a great father. And he is a perfect father. No longer is God our enemy. And through Forgiveness of our sins and through God's gracious adoption of us into his family, we have come to know him as our Heavenly Father. And that's why Paul tells us that we can now cry out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy. It's personal. He's my Heavenly Father. God is not distant. He is not uncaring. And John wants to remind us of this truth about you as a believer. And then he comes to this third truth and he says, you have overcome the wicked one, which is just John's term for Satan or the devil. Warriors in the faith are now addressed by this term, young men. These are believers who are actively engaged in spiritual warfare against Satan. In fact, but don't think for a minute this is not true about you. Even though he uses this term, young men, this is true for every believer because all believers are engaged in spiritual warfare, or at least we should be. John says in verse 13, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Oh my gosh, that is victory right there. You have overcome. It's past tense. But it carries forward in the present. Verse 14, he says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. I like to consider myself strong, and then I go play softball. I go play basketball, and I'm like, nah, I'm not so strong. <laughs> Don't have the energy I used to. Can't jump, as, run as fast as I used to. And uh, But now, spiritually speaking, John is reminding me, that's okay, Bruce, you may be 50, but you are strong. If... Because he tells us where the strength comes from if you abide in the Word of God. You're strong because of that. And the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Listen, there's no doubt that our strength to defeat Satan has this twofold source one is the work of Christ in our lives, what Christ has done on the cross for us. That is the source of our strength, but there's also this other source of strength. And it's our responsibility to abide in that, and that is the Word of God abiding in us, and we abide in it. Satan will accuse us on the one hand, and he will tempt us on the other. And when Satan accuses me of sin, that's when I trust the work of Christ. That my debt of sin has been paid. He has nothing with which he can condemn me. Sure, Satan can accuse me, he can try to make me feel guilty, but that, accus- uh, that accusation does not stand because of Christ's work in my life. Oh, Satan then will tempt me to sin, and that's when I turn to the Word of God as my sword to overcome the wicked one, just as Jesus did in the wilderness. We are strong in the Word. And we can overcome the wicked one even now in the present. Why is John, though, reminding us of these three truths? Listen, this isn't by accident what John is doing. The Holy Spirit is directing John to write this. And there's a reason why John is writing this and reminding you of these truths. And why is that? John knows that none of us can overcome temptation in this world. If we feel that our sins are unforgiven, and God is distant from us, and the devil is victorious over us. If we feel that, if we think that, if we believe that, we will not fight the spiritual warfare that we're in. Unless there is hope of winning, there's no motivation to fight this daily battle, is there not? I remember, Jack, you probably remember, when he was playing Pop Warner football, he started out like in second grade. And I'm telling you what, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, he was on this team. Well, and there's no other way to say it, except they were awful. I mean, they were just terrible. And they were lucky to win one game a season. And I remember, like, the second year, third year, she's like, Dad, I'm so tired of losing. I said, I know, Jack. Just focus on what your job is. Focus on what you can do out there. And he just, you know, and you were just fighting this temptation to just give up. Why, why even try? We're just going to lose. And that can be so easy to do. I mean, even now, at 50, I mean, some of us here are playing softball. In our team, and we have a new team we haven't played in 17 years, a church team. and Well, to be honest with you, we're just not that good. We haven't won a game yet. We're 0-8. Yeah, and it can be a little bit depressing. Like, should we keep trying or not? Listen, if there's no hope of winning, there's no motivation to fight to fight sin and to fight Satan. When hope is gone, the strength of motivation goes to and this dark cloud of defeat settles down on the soul. But John's aim is that we would continue, that we would persevere as believers in Christ. His aim is that we as believers will walk in the light of Jesus Christ and not the darkness, that we will love God and not this world. And so this is why he tells us this. But where does this kind of hope and courage to fight sin and Satan come from? It comes from what's true about you as a believer. Here in these three verses, we hear, and by God's grace we believe, news that's almost too good to be true. And the news is this. Your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. You know God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, you have already overcome the wicked one. You are victorious. And because this is true about you now, John comes to us and he says, Listen, if this is true, then don't love the world or the things in the world. So the first reason is because of who we are. He says this. But there's a second reason John warns us not to love the world. Because of what the world is. Because of what the world is. Now what exactly does John mean when he says stop loving the world? Does that mean I can't eat ice cream or popcorn? Does it mean I shouldn't swim at the beach or hike in the mountains? How about watching the royals at the K or the chiefs on TV with family and friends? I mean, should we all just move into a monastery or a nunnery? Is that what John means here? Well, before you don your robe and head off to isolation or seclusion, hold on for a minute because let's kind of first get a grip here on what John means since the term world has wide variety, a wide range of meaning in the Bible. And so the world we're not to love is this. Let me define it for you. So there's no ambiguity about this. It's not the world of creation. It's not the world of humanity either. But rather, John is referring to the world system with its philosophies, principles, and practices. Now, John can't be talking about the world of creation, such as the physical planet of the mountains, the rivers, trees, beaches, and oceans. God has created a beautiful world for our pleasure. And I can't wait. My wife and I, we get to go again with our... A live student ministry, we leave a week from tomorrow morning, bright and early. We get to go out to God's creation of the Rocky Mountains, and it's wonderful. And enjoy that, and see it, and just stand in amazement of God's beauty, and enjoy His world of creation. So John's not referring there, but he's also, he's not referring or talking about the world of humanity, such as the mass of people who live on this planet. John 3.16 reminds us that God loves the world so much that He gave His what? His Son. So that we could have eternal life and we are to love the world of people in the same way and yet we also recognize that this world system has its people that are a part of it and are being used by Satan. Those who are unbelievers. The world that John is referring to is the world system, and we use this word world in that sense all the time in our conversations, such as when we refer to the world of politics or the world of sports. We understand this is not referring to a separate planet, but to an invisible system, and so in the context of 1 John, the world refers to a system of false philosophies, ideologies, morals, values, practices, and a way of thinking that is exist independent of God in fact even in opposition to God this is the world that John is warning us not to love the world system in fact there's two characteristics that I want to just highlight for us this morning here about the world system first of all it's operated by Satan himself This system that he tells us, this world system, is operated by Satan. Listen to what John writes about Satan in 1 John 5, verse 19. He says, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The Bible calls Satan the ruler of or prince of this world, in John 12, 31. And the God of this age, in 1 Corinthians 4, 4. Believe it or not, Satan is the one who holds the entire world under his sway. He runs the systems of this world. In other words, he's got the whole world in his hands. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan is independent of God's ultimate control. Oh, no. But it does mean Satan is the one who is the mastermind orchestrating together all its various parts into one massive rebellion against God. That is the world in which John is referring to. And so it is operated by Satan, and as you might imagine, it is opposed to God. That's the second characteristic. Everything about this present world system is anti-God. and functions apart from God. Listen to me. The world system in which we are a part of, in which we live, it is opposed to the will of God, it is opposed to the word of God, and ultimately it is opposed to the worship of God. It's anti-God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, longtime pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, described the world In this fashion, he says, It must mean the organization and the mind and the outlook of mankind as it ignores God and does not recognize him as God and as it lives a life independent of God. A life that is based upon this world and this life only. It means the outlook that has rebelled against God and turned its back upon God. It means, in other words, the typical kind of life that is being lived by the average person today who has no thought of God, no time for God, but thinks only of this world and this life. It is the whole outlook upon life that is exclusive of God. Now, folks, that just describes about all of our neighbors, friends, at school, work, co workers, even family. I mean, it's everybody that's an unbeliever in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a heart for these people and love them and seek to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what John is saying. The reality is, though, this world system is operated by Satan and is opposed to God in his purposes. Now, and this is why John is telling us, this is what's true about you. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the first reason not to love this world, but also because of what the world is. It's anti-God, and you say, you claim, you are part of God's family. And so now, John gives us another reason. It's is, is like, why does he say this? It's almost as if John knows we're like teenagers who, when told not to do something, immediately, our first question is what? Why? Why? Man, if I heard that question why a thousand times, I'd be a rich man from my boys. Why, why, why? And John, he knows this is coming. And so he gives us two more arguments or incentives for not loving the world. And brings us to the third reason here. Because of what the world does to us. Because of what the world does to us. Although we may view John's warning as a negative command we need to realize it's a negative command that produces a very positive result. It saves us from the devastating consequences of our infatuation with the world. John understands something here. And as an old father, if you will, he is trying to impart godly wisdom to us, godly truth. Because he loves us and cares about us. And he understands that the greatest danger in loving the world is that it drives out our love for God. Notice again what he writes in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now again, what is John telling us here? He is saying love for God and love for the world cannot coexist in the same heart. Either love for the world pushes out love for God, or love for God pushes out love for the world. You say, why is that? Because it's impossible to love God and love the world at the same time. These two loves are mutually exclusive. They are diametrically opposed to each other and they cannot coexist in the same heart. Either our love for this world will push out love for God or our love for God will push out love for the world. We may say, I know God. I know Jesus. But if we continue to love the world John says, the love of the Father is not in you. John just comes out. He's so black and white, isn't he? He's so up front. He just, he holds no punches back. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So don't love the world, because that puts you in the same group with the, quote, God-haters, whether you think you are or not. And John then explains why. He gives us a reason why love for God and love for the world cannot coexist in the same heart. Basically, he says everything in the world system is not from God. It's not of God. According to verse 16, The reason love for the world pushes out love for God is all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, just leave out those three middle phrases here for a moment. Pull out those three middle phrases, and we could summarize it this way of what John is telling us. The reason love for the world drives out love for God is all that is in the world is not of God. In other words, it's just empty talk or empty faith to say that you love God if you love what is not of God. Now, let's go back to these three phrases in the middle of verse 16. Because this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. John is identifying for us The weapons of worldliness in which Satan uses. So beware of these weapons of mass destruction in your life. Weapons of worldliness. Notice it. The world will use the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to seduce your heart away from God. What's interesting is Satan actually used these same three weapons to derail Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So this is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And Satan used these same three weapons to derail Adam and Eve in the Garden, and then he comes along and he uses these same three weapons to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse in the message. He says, practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. And so the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes refer to desires for what you don't have in life. And the pride of life refers to the pride in what we do already have. And the world is driven by these two things. Passion for pleasure, pride in possessions. Just think about that for a moment. The world is driven by these two things. Every commercial you see is driven by this. Our whole culture is driven by this, a passion for pleasure, immediate pleasure, immediate gratification, and then in pride in our possessions. And so we live in this culture that's all about getting more and more and more because nothing ever satisfies a passion for pleasure, pride in possessions. Anything in this world that is not of God, John says, can seduce your heart away from God. In fact, it can rob your heart of the love of God. And if you don't have it, Satan comes along, the world comes along and says you can fill, it can fill you with passion to get it. And if you get it, you can, it can fill you with pride that you've got it. This is why we must constantly guard against these weapons of worldliness. Now, I've used this term worldliness a couple times here, but what is that exactly? What is worldliness? Well, I like how C.J. Mahaney defines it in his book, Worldliness. He defines worldliness as a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. That's worldliness summarized. To that definition, he adds these questions for self-evaluation. Does outward prosperity appeal to you more than growth and godliness? If it does, you're being tempted by the weapons of worldliness. Do you esteem and crave the approval of those around you more than you do the approval of Jesus Christ? If you do, then the weapons of worldliness are driving in in your heart. Do you go to great lengths to avoid looking foolish or being rejected for your Christian faith? In other words, students in high school, Adults at your work and family, neighborhood? Do we have the courage to stand up for Jesus Christ? If we don't, we are being seduced by the weapons of worldliness. Do you consider present material results more important than eternal reward? Have you departed from God and adopted idols instead? Now, what John is doing us doing here he is taking us inside of our hearts inside of ourselves with these weapons of worldliness because these weapons believe it or not actually reside in our hearts you could say the beast is within it's within us the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life embody the core of what we struggle against every day i know for myself that lust And pride are rooted in who I am as a sinful human being. And so it is a daily battle to fight against sin and Satan. But that's when we have to remember what's true about us as believers in Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. You know Jesus and God is your Father. And in Christ you are strong in the Word of God and have already overcome the wicked one. And so John comes along and he says, listen, remember those truths, so stand strong and don't let worldliness squeeze you into its mold, as the Apostle Paul would tell us in Romans 12, too. And you say, but how do I do this? How do I stand strong against these weapons of worldliness, these temptations? And John would come back and he would say, use your weapon. Use your weapon. And you're like, what weapon?" I didn't know I had a weapon. And that's part of the problem. Don't forget, you have a weapon that overcomes the wicked one. And you have a weapon that fights against the weapons of worldliness. And according to the last half of verse 14, that weapon is the word of God. In Hebrews, it is called the sword. The reason some of you here this morning are always living in defeat. And so you succumb to the temptations of the world. You succumb to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. And you never seem to be able to overcome these weapons and fight against them and stand strong against them. And the reason is. You don't know God's Word. You don't know any truth. Therefore, you don't know how to apply truth. You don't know God's truth. And when you don't know God's truth, and when you don't know truth about yourself as a believer, and when you don't know truth about what God says, or what's the big picture here going on, and we don't know God's Word, it is like going to a shootout with a pea shooter. You're going to lose every time. This is why it is so vital then to renew our minds with the Word of God. John knows this. So does the Apostle Paul. And that's why they basically say the same thing to us. Our culture, we are inundated with the lies and deceptions of Satan. It is, we are living in a muck of it. And the only way to counter that is with the truth of God's Word. That's why it's important to come on Sundays faithfully and to be, hear the Word of God being taught and preached. But also during the week to renew our minds to counter the lies of Satan. John adds one more powerful reason or incentive for not loving the world. Reason number four is because of where the world is going. Look what John writes in verse 17. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. If John was standing here this morning, he would say, pay attention and be warned. Pay attention and be warned. Loving the world is a deadly affair. The world is self-destructing and it is headed for God's final judgment and all who love this world will perish with it. The world system has this built-in design flaw. Do you realize that? It's temporary. It's on a crash course for destruction. Nobody buys stocks in a company that they know is going bankrupt. And so loving the world is a bad investment. You're going to lose everything. Nobody sets up house on a sinking ship. And so loving the world is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're a moron for doing so. It's foolish. It's stupid. To set your heart on this world and the things of the world It's not only asking For headache but it is asking for misery in the end. Why? Because this world is what? John says it is passing away. It's not getting better and better and better as some people think it is and some people hope it is. No, it's not. This world is in the process of self-destructing. And so when you watch the news, when you read the news, you shouldn't be surprised with what you read. Not only is this world passing away, but also the lust of it. You say, what's that mean? It means this, that if you share the desires of the world, you will pass away with it. You will not only lose your treasure, John says you will lose your life. If you love the world, it will pass away and take you with it. Now, don't miss the contrast, though, here in verse 17. I love the contrast. It's a beautiful contrast. It's an important contrast. John says, but, but, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What an amazing contrast between two destinies of those who love the world and those who love God. If you love the world, basically John is saying, get ready because you will perish with the world. But if you love God instead of the world, you will live forever with God. According to the Chicago Tribune on March 3, 1995, a 38-year-old man who was walking to his temporary job at a warehouse in Rosemont, Illinois, tried to get there by cutting across get this eight lanes of highway traffic on the tri-state tollway. After he crossed the four northbound lanes, however, the wind blew his hat off. The hat flew back across the northbound lanes, and he chased it. And that's when a tractor-trailer truck hit him and killed him instantly on impact. Listen to me. You can lose everything by chasing after nothing in this world. Why give your life to temporary pleasures and possessions? Why, why focus and concentrate your ambitions on what is simply passing away? The warning here is clear to us abandon ship before it's too late. This world is sinking, and it is sinking fast. And there's only one way to be saved. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for your salvation. And perhaps some of you are saying, me and Bruce, I hear what you're saying. I hear the words of the Apostle John Hear the truth here. I hear it, but you know what? I just don't feel very much love for God. go to bed at night, or I wake up in the morning, and I don't feel anything for God. I don't feel like loving God. I don't feel any love for God. And if that's you here this morning, there are two possibilities as to why that is. The first possibility is this. You are not a true believer yet. Therefore, you're still dead in your sins. Do you realize that it's possible to attend church Sunday after Sunday. It is possible to go through the motions of worship without ever being born again. Without ever experiencing a change in your heart that only Jesus Christ can bring about. Henry Martin, a missionary and translator in the last century, he looked at his conversion to Christ Four years later, and he said this about it. The work is real. I can no more doubt it than I can my own existence. The whole current of my desires is altered. I am walking quite another way, though I am incessantly stumbling in that way. I love how honest he is. So could it be that this conversion to Christ, what Jesus says, being born again, could this conversion of christ has it never happened to you and you are still dead in your sins and therefore you don't feel any love for god after all if you're dead in your sins a a dead body doesn't feel anything do they a dead person feels nothing spiritually speaking it's the same thing And if you are not a believer in christ if you have not yet born again There's no way for you to feel any love for God. And so perhaps that's you. And if that's you this morning, then seek Jesus with all your heart. Ask Jesus to open your eyes to your sinfulness. Ask Him to open your eyes to a new life in Him. Repent of your sins and by faith ask Jesus to forgive you and save you. And for that is the only way that you will begin to feel love for God. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 13, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. And so perhaps that's where you need to start here this morning. But there's another possibility if you don't feel much love for God. In fact, you would have to say, My love for the world is greater than my love for God. And if that's you, perhaps this possibility is true. You are a true believer, but your love for God has grown weak. You see, it's possible that you have indeed been born again. It's possible that you've tasted what it means to have a heart for God, but now your love has grown cold and weak. But the same Spirit, listen, I got great news the same Spirit that brings new life in Christ also nourishes. The life you already have in Christ. The same Word of God that ignites the fire of love for God also rekindles our love for God. The same Jesus who brought you out of darkness into His light can take away the dark night of your soul. In other words, yield yourselves to the Holy Spirit. Immerse yourself in God's Word. Cry out to Christ for a new appreciation of His grace. Ask God to rekindle your love for Him. The place for some of you to start here this morning is to simply confess your sin and repent of it and ask God, God, help me just to love you. Bring about a love for you that is greater than the love for the world. Help me to see that you are everything. If your love for God is cold and weak, it's because love for the world has begun to take over your heart for God and choke out your love for God. Remember, love for this world and love for God cannot coexist in the same heart. And so ask God to rekindle your love for him so that you may say what the psalmist said in seventy-three twenty-five: Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing upon earth that I desire besides you. Oh, let us desire nothing here this morning but God. Let us pursue nothing but God. I end with this Cinderella story. He played quarterback at a small, obscure college called Northern Iowa. The NFL had no use for him, so he was forced to play in Europe and then arena football back in the U.S. He married an abandoned divorcee on food stamps and worked in a grocery store after being cut by the Green Bay Packers, making $5.50 an hour stocking shelves. God, however, had something special for him. In 2000, he led the St. Louis Rams to the Super Bowl. In 2001, he was named the NFL's MVP. His name is Kurt Warner, and he is a wonderfully committed Christian. Commenting on his playing days in Europe, he said this, and I quote, I really got to know the Lord there because of all the temptations from the devil in Amsterdam. Drugs, women, promiscuity everywhere you go. The devil tried to get me to fall, but I gave my life completely to the Lord. When asked what he wanted his football epitaph to be, he simply said this. He used his football platform to work for Jesus. Listen, the world loves us in order to abuse us and destroy us. But Jesus loves us in order to save us and use us. The world's glory is for a moment, but God's glory is forever. And so leave here this morning remembering the words of John. The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God, what? Abides forever. Lives forever with God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And we come in our neediness before you. And we ask that you would begin to do something in our hearts that only you can do. To take your word and your truth and to convict us, to challenge us, to show us where our lives are out of alignment with you. Lord, I pray and ask that those who are unbelievers, that you would show them their need for Jesus Christ. You would grant them the faith to confess you as their Lord and Savior, and they would receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. Lord, for those who are already believers, perhaps our love has grown weak and cold and If we're honest, we have to say our love for the world is greater and stronger than our love for God. And so, Lord, show us that. Would you rekindle that love? Use your spirit, use your word, use your church to do just that. And so, Lord, do a work that's your work. May this time be given to you and that we would respond appropriately. As Zach sings, in your name we pray, amen. Zach's going to sing just a chorus, and this is your opportunity to respond right where you're seated.